0: Damn, he looks better dressed than us, Clint. Shit.
1: Oh well, he's a lawyer. He's supposed to.
0: <laughs> right. High, high ticket
1: clients. You know, yeah, you know, professional dress is, you know, it's, it's 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 dependent upon the vocation, right?
0: In,
2: indeed. One would hope. Yeah, yeah. Although we've all seen my cousin Vinny, so
0: you got a cousin Vinny too? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a, it a shark skin. The Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Brought
2: to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts.
1: Welcome to Meet the Pressers. My name is Clint Macro, and this is my co host.
0: Matt Mallory. And we have a special guest today, somebody that I've admired and talked to for many years at a lot of the shows, as well as Clint, by the name of Andrew Bronca.
1: This episode is made possible with the generous support of Nikon, Shooter Technology Group, ASP, Lee Armory, Sabre Red, and the Safer Faster Defense Responder 2.0. Thank you.
0: Give us a little bit of background as far as I know you, you started originally in, was it Massachusetts?
2: Massachusetts, 25 years in Massachusetts, which was uh, about 24 and a half years too long, uh, but finally escaped out to Colorado about three years ago now at this point. Okay. Uh, what can I say? I'm an attorney. I do use of force law, which is self-defense, defense of others, defense of property. That's all I do. Uh, I don't have a generalized criminal defense practice. I don't do DWIs and, and stuff like that. And uh been doing that for about... Uh, Gosh, pushing 30 years now doing nothing but uh, use of force law cases. And we do a combination of uh, education, books, DVDs, uh, mostly to help keep people out of trouble in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then when people don't manage to stay out of trouble, our our legal practice is mostly along the lines of uh, legal consultation to attorneys around the country who have clients who've got jammed up on some kind of criminal charge based on the use of force. Mostly aggravated assault cases involving normally law abiding people just like us.
1: I'm reasonably familiar with some of your material there. There we go. <clears throat> yeah, uh, definitely law of self-defense is one of those kind of standards as far as, you know, this is the book you should read most certainly. Uh, actually, we do a lot of work, or at least I have, and I, I believe Matt, you have too. We've done a lot of work with Will Parker, and Will speaks very, very highly of your, of your uh, instructor development. As far yeah, as, Will's uh, a
2: great guy. He's a graduate of our uh, instructor program, the Law and Self-Defense Instructor Program. Will does great work. He's a real professional on uh,
1: every facet of use of force. He does have the coolest mustache in firearm training. Yes,
0: indeed. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Some people don't know, but we uh, I think we met originally at the Great American Show probably three years ago, roughly.
2: It was probably either shot or NRA. I don't think I've been to the Great American Show. Um,
0: now that you say it, I think it was shot. It was probably shot show like three years ago. it was uh, the uh, laser ammo booth you came by when we got talking and since then we've been we've been uh, collaborating back and forth talking back and forth and i want to thank you publicly for uh, helping me get a meeting with george zimmerman if i honestly believe i don't know if it's the the case but i honestly believe if it wasn't for you uh saying that i was a nice guy i don't think george would have met with me so I appreciate well, that. Well,
2: it, it was my pleasure to do. Obviously, the meeting was ultimately George's decision to make, but I was happy to make the introduction. Uh, George is a, a genuinely nice guy. In fact, uh, the terrible troubles he's encountered in his life are, are, I believe, mostly a consequence of him being too nice a guy
0: yeah.
2: um, and putting himself in positions where he, got, he was vulnerable to having this happen to him. But uh, yeah, I wish George the best and uh, glad I was able to facilitate you uh, talking with him.
1: So when working with average law-abiding citizens, what would you say, in what areas do you think they're most deficient when it comes to just knowledge and understanding of how the law works?
2: Well, I mean, there's a number of vulnerabilities most people have. Probably the biggest one is not so much that they don't know um, use of force law, but that what they know is mostly wrong. Um, They've been taught by people who themselves don't actually know how self-defense law works, So they're basing their decision-making off uh, things they've heard on the internet or read in a gun magazine or their retired cop buddy told them Mm. or uh, anecdotes they read about in the papers or even things like the NRA magazine where they have those armed citizen columns where we have stories about people who use force and defenses themselves or others or, or property. And it always works out great for the good guy and not so great for the bad guy. But in fact, A lot of those anecdotal stories about use of force are not lawful uses of force. These are people who used force unlawfully, and the only reason they're not getting arrested, prosecuted, and convicted is because the authorities are choosing to use their discretion not to do that. Mm -hmm. So the Um, politics. The politics. They just – maybe they're too busy. You know, every prosecutor Mm. has roughly 20 times as many cases on their desk as they could possibly take to trial. So they're prioritizing. Hmm. Um, and if you look like a good guy, and depending on the politics of whatever geographic region you live in in that part of the country, um, it may be more or less likely that they'll use their discretion to bring you to trial or not bring you to trial. But of course, that decision then is in someone else's hands. It's not in your hands. Yeah. It's not a function of what you did. It's a hmm. function of what they choose to do. And I would suggest when the stakes are as high as they are, and the stakes are potentially you know, multi-decade felonies or life in prison, uh, you don't want that decision to be solely at the discretion of some third party whose interest may not be aligned with your interest.
0: And if we look at the case of George Zimmerman, right, public outcry, public scrutiny, jury of public opinion, that's really ultimately what brought that to it, to to being uh, after they searched for multiple district attorneys to finally try the case. And if we flip it over to New York, which just recently happened, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it, but in Oneida County, we had a homeowner who his father passed away. And he was in possession of his father's handgun, and he ended up turning around. Two bad guys broke in, shot him, and uh, they deceased on the scene. He wasn't charged with that. He was charged with, that was a good defense, but he was charged with being in possession of an illegal firearm. Jury of public opinion was scrutinizing the DA, how dare you? He would have been dead if he didn't use the gun, and da 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 And eventually they said, well, okay, we're going to drop the case.
2: Oh, I hadn't heard they dropped the case.
0: Yeah, recently. Uh, very it was fortunate
2: for him. I mean, the gun laws York are, are very strict, and the punishments are very severe. So yep. he got a. I'm glad he got that lucky break. Yeah, um, we, yeah, and most of the most of the country, of course, it would have been a non-factor. Most of the country, you don't need any particular permit, whatever, simply right. to have a firearm in your home. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's only states like New York and where I used to live, Massachusetts and New Jersey. You know, those half dozen really powerfully anti Second Amendment states that make mere possession of a fire, firearm by an otherwise law-abiding person itself to be a serious crime.
0: Yeah. I just dealt with that. We've got a guy in Cougar County who ended up having some, some felonies and stuff in his background. Uh, I think a felony and some misdemeanors. He petitioned the judge to at least restore his Second Amendment ability, his Second Amendment rights. So he applied for a pistol license. While he was waiting for it, he ordered some 80% kits off the Internet started and started building the guns and then while he was building them, he found out that he got denied because a different judge said, nope, you got a felony, I'm not, I don't care what the other judge said. So they denied him and he ended up building them but he also ordered a ID uh, off of a foreign country's website, a replica military ID and uh, customs caught it, turned it over to ATF, ATF ended up busting them and he didn't have a pistol license. He had pistols that were not on a pistol license and they didn't have a serial number. So ATF allows you to build guns, but in New York, if you do that, you have to put your own serial number on it and register it with the county um, and have it put on your license. If you don't, then you're in in illegal possession of a firearm without a serial number.
2: Yeah, I mentioned I used to live in Massachusetts and I was not sorry to leave there given the really (laughs) egregious uh, gun laws they have. I also used to live in New York. I mean, I went to law school in New York. I grew up in New York and uh, I don't miss New York either (laughs) uh, due to its gun laws. Uh, Frankly, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. but, uh, just the, the culture is, um, uh, for someone of my temperament, rather unbearable.
1: Yeah. I did two days of uh, classes up in Massachusetts earlier this year. And I took my son with me and we, we went to battle road at Lexington and Concord, but, uh, because of the States I was traveling through, uh, we drove there obviously. And, and, uh, it, I, I went there with a cert pistol and a Sharpie. I mean, that's what I took to my class. I, I knew that I could take some guns and whatnot, but. Uh, it was just, wasn't worth the risk to put myself in that position. So, you know, pepper spray in the pocket and, and eyes wide open, but that patch, patchwork quilt of laws across the country really puts the law abiding citizen at a great disadvantage.
2: Yeah, it does. Uh by the way, my law office in Massachusetts used to be in Concord, so I used to go to that battlefield quite often. It's, it's lovely there.
1: Indeed.
2: Um, yeah, you know, believe it or not, not long ago, Massachusetts required a firearms identification card even to have just pepper spray. Hmm. Uh, they changed that law only about five, four or five years ago, I believe, so they no longer have that requirement. But in those days, if you came in from out of state with pepper spray and didn't have a Massachusetts uh, firearms ID card, which you almost certainly would not have because the non-resident provisions were very difficult uh, to adhere to, uh, that would have been a crime in and of itself. So at least they liberalized that part of their weapons laws, which is good. Uh, yeah, no, it's very unfortunate that we um, we live in a state where uh, many governments and many courts are in effect in open rebellion against the Second Amendment. They simply mm-hmm. don't want to recognize it. They don't. They refuse to recognize the controlling Supreme Court decisions on the case. Uh, when I read these federal court decisions that are anti-Second Amendment, uh, they look to me like nothing but word salad. There are a bunch of noises that the judges <laughs> made that have a predetermined yeah. position that they yep. don't want to uh, recognize the Second Amendment to its fullest extent. And they they make a lot of noises and they write a lot of words, uh, none of which are a rational justification for their infringement of the Second yeah. Amendment. Uh, but it's good enough for their purposes. So they, they've they written a 20-page opinion, and if you just weigh it, It would feel substantive. When you read it, it's utter nonsense. But until the courts, the higher courts are willing to do something about it, until the Supreme Court's willing to do something about it, until we elect politicians that are willing to do something about it, this is the state of affairs in which we live.
0: People don't understand that, right? The, The jury box, the ammo box, hopefully doesn't come to.
2: You know, the Second Amendment only means what we want it to mean. It's only as powerful as we insist it be powerful. There are other amendments, like the Tenth Amendment, for example, that for legal purposes doesn't really exist simply because it's been ignored for so long. The Tenth Mm -hmm. Amendment being that any any powers not given to the federal government are reserved to the states. Nobody pays any attention to the Tenth Amendment when we pass these federal laws that increasingly expand the, the power of the federal government. It's completely ignored. It's completely ignored by the courts, too. Uh, the Second Amendment could easily achieve that same neutered status and become an amendment that means nothing. I mean, in New York, in effect, it means nothing. In -hmm. Massachusetts, it means nothing. In New Jersey, it means nothing. Um, And in almost every other state, it's at least to some degree, greater or lesser, substantially infringed. I mean, the truth is all preemptive gun laws that are applied to law-abiding, mentally sound Americans are facially unconstitutional. Indeed. Indeed. Now, if you want to apply those gun laws to people who are not law-abiding, they've got felony convictions, okay, sounds reasonable. People who are not mentally sound, no one's arguing that non-mentally sound people should have firearms. But for Americans who've never violated a a serious law, who are mentally capable, any infringement on their right to keep and bear arms uh, is an infringement of of their civil rights.
1: It's interesting you mentioned that about the 10th Amendment, because I'm sure that that amendment held a lot more water prior to the war between the states. So as as the citizenry evolves and as that politics infiltrates it, I I can see where your point with the uh, Second Amendment being neutered, especially in many states and could potentially be in all states.
2: Yeah. Easily the case, unless we insist that not be the case by electing politicians. And of course, at least at the federal level, the politicians we elect are also the ones who appoint the judges. So we're in a fortunate position now where we're at least getting middle of the road judges. I wouldn't, at the federal level, I wouldn't necessarily call them conservative judges, but they're at least middle of the road. Um, and middle of the road is likely to get some reasonable interpretation of the Second Amendment, hopefully, not further constraining it.
1: Well, I, it's always been my my feeling that an armed and educated citizenry is the true fourth check and balance in, in a constitutional republic. And armed is just one aspect of it. We need to be, you know, we need to be informed. We need to vote. We need to, you know, offer public service. I think that's what the uh, the founding fathers wanted us. To. They didn't want career politicians. They wanted each of us to take our turn at bat and, and put forth an effort to better society. And that's, I think that's part of, of my mission. I know Matt's taken that on as well to try to educate our fellow citizens, uh, you know, chiefly in their exercise of the second amendment. But yep. as you can see behind me, I've been a big proponent for the first amendment for many years, uh, you know, in the music and film industry. And I think it's important that we look at the bill of rights as a package deal. Like it all works together and works for one another. Mm-hmm. And until the citizenry sees it that way, we're going to see the neutering of each, you know, of individual, uh, individual amendments. Maybe maybe it's pie in the sky to think that it wouldn't be other than that, but that's my thought.
2: Yeah, all our rights are only as strong as we insist they be. Yeah, that's a good way to put and, it. And if we don't, then don't be surprised when they're gone. Hmm.
0: It's too fickle of a society. We were just talking about that earlier with uh, with uh, one of our other our guests as far as being very know, political and everybody's gonna get hurt and everybody should get a trophy you know, We've we just we've been a watered down society for some time now and,
1: and sanitized
0: and sanitized yeah you know, I think
2: well we're, probably we're probably in a cul- we're in a culture war i mean it's a war in every sense other than uh for the most part people are not shooting each other uh, obviously there's hot spots in the country where even that can't be said to be true right mm-hmm. uh, but there's we're in a culture war there's two tribes uh, and, uh, you know, they, they each wants to, or at least one of them wants to destroy the other. Uh, and people choose their sides. I personally uh, prefer the side that uh, respects and enforces and recognizes my civil rights as enumerated by the Bill of Rights of the Constitution. Uh, the other tribe doesn't. Uh, they're the shut up tribe. They're the we'll take your guns tribe. They're the uh, don't care much about property rights tribe. Uh, Unless, of course, it happens to suit their purposes on some specific political point. But otherwise, uh, these rights exist or don't exist at their whim, as opposed to being uh, principled civil rights that all of us possess. Um, So people need to be aware, you could just go about your business and ignore all this. And that's fine. That's that's your right too, as we live in a free country. Uh, but then don't expect these rights to uh, be around if you ever need them, if you're not prepared to at least defend them in a kind of social
1: manner. Hmm. Very well said. Yeah. One way people could do that is the the rally coming up. Hello, this is Clint Macro, founder of the Trigger Pressers Union. Elected officials at the local, state, and federal level are assaulting the rights and liberties of law-abiding citizens as they seek to impose restriction on our Second Amendment. Law-abiding gun owners from across the country are converging on Washington, D.C. November 2nd to let their voices be heard and say enough is enough. Log on to SecondAmendmentRally.com to pledge your support and dedication to the movement. The rally's not about any particular organization. It's about regular people. It's about you and I uh, standing together to stand up for our rights. Just like, uh, Andrew said, if we don't stand up and, and, and uh, advocate for our rights, then someone is more likely to just kind of snatch them away.
0: Very true. So Andrew, what kind of cases now, obviously you instruct other attorneys.
2: Sure. i yep. use used
0: force law across the country. That's right. And obviously you alluded to it earlier, discretion as far as the attorneys, district attorneys, et cetera. Um, discretion in law enforcement that I'm I'm familiar with, that, that, that goes across the board. How do you, as a national attorney, be able to give good enough information to somebody at a local level where that discretion comes into play and could affect sensible thought process?
2: Yeah, so I mostly teach on the black letter law, which is not so much uh, what might happen to someone who's uh, charged with the use of force crime if he gets a lucky break, if the prosecutor decides to use his discretion in that person's favor. Uh, I mostly focus on the scenarios in which the prosecutor does not choose to use their discretion in the person's favor. What happens if they don't give you a break? What happens if they want to throw the book at you? Because if your use of force is defensible in that worst case scenario, uh, then it's defensible if you get a lucky break too. But the reverse is not true. Uh, and if you look at even the most horrifically politically motivated prosecutions, like that of George Zimmerman, uh, it was terrible what those prosecutors did to him. They hid exculpatory evidence. They they effectively lied on the affidavit um, to bring him to trial in the first place, which in most states would have involved the grand jury. But Florida has this alternative method of bringing people to trial on felonies. Uh, they did terrible things in that case, in that trial. Uh, and yet, at the end of the day. They still were not able to convict him and they weren't able to convict him because his use of force was so legally defensible was so well within the legally bound legal boundaries now what they did do to him was awful but it would have been even worse if he'd been convicted and then sentenced to the rest of his life in prison true uh, so that's that's where we make our focus in terms of teaching other attorneys we do continuing legal education and I think it's 35 or 40 states at this point. We've, we've never been denied anywhere. We just, I haven't gotten to Alaska yet. So, um, or sadly, Hawaii either.
0: <laughs> Very true. Um, state too.
2: But the truth is most attorneys are, we're not taught this stuff in law school at any substantive level. In my three years of law school, we spent maybe three minutes on self-defense law. Wow. Uh, that's it. And unless hmm. a lawyer's a, say a criminal defense attorney, or a prosecutor, they they themselves have no professional need to know any of this. If you do tax law, real estate law, there's you're exactly. never gonna learn self-defense law. Mm-hmm. There's be no point to it. And even most criminal defense attorneys and most prosecutors, they may be involved in a lot of self-defense cases, but almost all of them are going to be bad guy cases of self-defense, which are profoundly different than good guy cases mm-hmm. of self-defense on a number of levels. One is that most bad guy cases of self-defense, the self-defense claim is nonsense. It's nonsense Mm -hmm. on its face. It's obvious this was not self-defense. So prosecutors don't have any difficulty defeating them. And criminal defense attorneys don't really have much experience successfully defending them. So from a criminal defense perspective, you end up with a lot of defense attorneys who are kind of like a football team that has a lot of experience getting to the 50-yard line but never actually scoring a touchdown because their bad guy cases of self-defense get blown up so early Mm -hmm. in a criminal proceeding. Good guy cases of self-defense have to be argued to successful completion all the way to that uh, goal line. And most criminal defense attorneys I talk to, they could have been in practice 30, 40 years, and they've had maybe half a dozen good guy cases of self-defense over that Mm -hmm. period of time. Uh, one of the fortunate things about my practice is because I'm largely a legal consultant, I don't take clients directly. All my clients are other attorneys who are representing clients, is that I get exposure to a vastly greater number of criminal prosecutions of self-defense cases than would any tim- tip of good guy cases of self-defense than would any typical criminal defense attorney. Hmm.
0: Interesting.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's, I hadn't considered that, but I guess that's Either kind that. of the same thing as just assuming that someone in the military is a good shooter. You know, or, or a law enforcement officer, good shooters. Uh, those of us not in the legal field would probably guess that your expertise would be very broad. When in fact, uh, you know, in your profession, people are very specific with what they what they they teach. I like the and uh, the analogy about the football. Yeah, never never getting a touchdown. That that actually makes a great deal of sense. Right,
2: and and. You know, your analogy about law enforcement or military knowing how to shoot because they're law enforcement or military is very uh, apt. Yeah. Uh, for any of us who do any kind of competitive shooting, we've gone to matches where a cop shows up for the first time to shoot the match and he gets smoked by a bunch of overweight accountants right, <laughs> competing in that match. Uh, because they're simply better shooters. They're more disciplined about it. They've been doing it longer. They're more practiced. Uh, their shooting is vastly greater in extent than the you know twice-a-year qualification that the police officer does. Yep. Uh, now, that comes as a surprise to the police officer. Often, they don't come back, unfortunately. Uh, I wish they would. Uh, when they do, by the way, those officers become just as capable shooters as the people who smoked them the first time around because sure. they also become disciplined productive shooters who put in the personal effort. But unless someone who's a cop or someone who's in the military does put in that personal effort to become a highly skilled shooter, the job doesn't make that happen. There's no right. pixie dust that they sprinkle over people and make them good shooters. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah. And it's the same with uh, with attorneys. There's no pixie dust that makes them know how use of force law works. Now, if they've made the effort uh, one of the things I teach in my classes is that just like we can't assume a, a police officer or a military can shoot well, we can't assume they know anything about self-defense law either. And yet that's hmm. a, a lot of where people learn what they yep. think is self-defense law. So uh, police, uh, lawyers, uh, firearms instructors, these are generally not great places to get information on self-defense law, not because they're, they're, they have ill will or malice or, or bad intentions, but they don't know it. They may think they know it, but in fact, they don't because they haven't made that personal effort to look at the primary research, the law itself, the statutes, the jury instructions, the court decisions that actually control the use of force for lawful purposes within their jurisdictions. That's why we do CLE in 3540 states, because those lawyers literally have no place else to go to learn this stuff unless they were to decide to spend weeks in a law library learning it for themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a judge uh, judge text me a couple months ago, asking about something in the penal code where somebody could take their kid out to the range and shoot here in New York. And uh, I said, judge, yeah, you're looking for 265.20, <laughs> and they gave him, gave him the exact spot in the law. And he's like, I knew you'd know, Matt. So that that right there was kind of a, a revelation to me, like, really, that's, that's interesting. But there is so much convoluted law. Um, you know. And then, and then even geographically in the state, I was doing a law enforcement use of force, article 35 refresher for law enforcement back in October down in Poughkeepsie area. And we had about 150 officers from all over the state in the room. And the instructor asked one of the people on one side, of them, oh, you're in Buffalo. Okay. Well, you know, if somebody got punched in the orbital eye socket and broke the eye socket, what would the person that committed that crime be charged with? Oh, it'd be assault three. And then, okay, you down here in Long Island or New York city, what would they be charged with? Oh, that's assault two. It's like, it's the same black and white, it's the same penal code, but what's different? The people the elected officials, the, the, you know, the jury.
2: Yeah, the people in the practice. I mean, that's one of the concerns. Unfortunately, one of the most common ways people learn what they think is use of force law, and I mentioned this earlier, is from anecdotes. They, they read a news story mm-hmm. about someone who used force in purported self-defense or defense of others or defense of property, and that person ends up not getting arrested or prosecuted and convicted, and the reader assumes, well, that must mean that what that person did was lawful. Hmm. No, it doesn't mean that. It just means they chose not to arrest, prosecute, and convict. But unfortunately, too many times, the cases I work on, our clients are telling us, well, geez, I heard about my neighbor who did this, and he never got in trouble. Folks, it could be exactly the same fact pattern and exactly the same prosecutor on different days of the week, and one case could go to trial and the other case could not. Um, Not because there's any substantive difference between the cases. They could effectively be exactly identical, But maybe the prosecutor cleared his desk of a bunch of cases, and now he's got the bandwidth to take another case at trial. Or maybe he's decided to run for political office, and this would be a nice high-profile case for him to get uh, favorable news coverage. Uh, These are all factors that are totally outside the defender's control. So we have to be very careful not to make ourselves vulnerable to those kinds of factors. And the only way to do that is to stay so well within the legal boundaries for use of force That it doesn't matter what the political motivations of a prosecutor might be. You've effectively made yourself hard to convict. And if you make Mm -hmm. yourself hard to convict, the prospects of going to trial are very low. Prosecutors do not like to take losing cases to trial. You can think of them as being effectively professionally graded on their win-loss record. And frankly, that's reflected in their win-loss record. Most prosecutors' offices have conviction rates at trial in excess of 90%. At the federal level, it's in excess of 95%. Hmm. And you, it's not just because they're awesome lawyers, although many of them are. It's because they get to choose the cases they bring to trial. Yep. If your favorite sports team got to choose the opponents that have played, it would have a 95% win rate too. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's that a great means <laughs> you want to look like not one of the cases that would be an easy win at trial because that's going to raise your priority, right? That's going to help his winning percentage. You want to look like the case that's hard to win a trial because that's a threat to their winning percentage. And then they're much less interested in taking the risk of losing that case at trial. So the, really the key is to know the laws of self-defense, the legal boundaries well enough in an actionable way, so it's actually informing your decision-making in the crisis of the moment, that when it's all said and done, you look like you're hard to convict. And if you look like you're hard to convict, one, you're unlikely to go to trial in the first place, and two, even if for some bizarre political reasons, they do take you to trial anyway, like George Zimmerman, Mm -hmm. you end up acquitted. And by the way, not all these prosecutors, I know a lot of prosecutors, and almost invariably they're great lawyers, uh, well-intentioned public servants. Uh, they're great people, but not all of them are. Yeah. Uh, some of them are purely politically motivated animals. Mm. Uh, the prosecutor in the George Zimmerman case brought George Zimmerman to trial on murder charges, where if convicted, he would have spent the rest of his life in a cage solely because she was having trouble winning re election. That's the only reason. Hmm. Uh, no legal reason, no principled reason, just because she was having difficulties in her election and she thought that trial would help her win re election. And you know what? She was right she won re-election because of that trial. Sure. So, it's it's th- these yep. these events can be multi-dimensional in very dangerous ways. In the case of the George Zimmerman trial, you might think, well, Zimmerman was acquitted, that means the prosecution lost. Well, the prosecution only lost if their definition of winning was getting a guilty verdict. In fact, their definition mm. of winning was getting re-elected. Mm. They won. Their purpose was not necessarily to get a conviction. It was to get that re-election, and they achieved that goal.
0: Why can't George? And I know we've gone back and forth in uh, in Messenger and, and text talking about it a little bit, but can for our listeners and our viewers, can you explain why George Zimmerman doesn't have a case to sue Florida or why there hasn't been charges brought against that that politically motivated district attorney who took this case on in the first place?
2: So there's um, there's really two reasons. One is uh First of all, it's almost impossible to sue the government at all, and that includes prosecutors. For all practical purposes, prosecutors have essentially Mm -hmm. absolute immunity Immunity, from lawsuits from the people they bring to trial. And unfortunately, they really almost have to, because if they didn't, everyone they convicted would be suing the prosecutor, and the Mm -hmm. prosecutor would be doing nothing but handling those kinds of suits.
0: Kind of like what our presidents deal with now.
2: Exactly (laughs) right. Exactly right. (laughs) So... Uh, You know, prosecutors have a lot of discretion and a lot of authority, which makes them, uh, which makes a tremendous degree of abuse possible. But I think it's, unfortunately, it's also necessary for them to do their jobs, which really means that it's not so much In an ideal world, we wouldn't be changing the scope of the prosecutor's authority. We'd be choosing better prosecutors, disciplined, honorable prosecutors who don't abuse that authority that they probably need in order to do their jobs effectively. Um, So, because of that, we make it almost impossible to sue prosecutors generally, to hold bad prosecutors accountable in any legal sense. Now, you can hold them accountable in a political sense, especially if they're elected, right? Someone else can run for that. Uh, position. Uh, but the other factor here is, is really just a kind of a practical human factor. And that is um, Angela Corey, who was the prosecutor in the Zimmerman case, won re-election. So she was back in a position yeah. of power for the next, whatever her term was, I think they're two or three years. Uh, now, I'm pleased to say she lost election the next time. But during that two or three years, the, kind of the uh, the energy around doing something about her just dissipated all the political people in Florida who would have been needed to be on board to pursue any action on against her had moved on to other things. They just, mm-hmm. their, their life had moved on. They just weren't interested anymore. And let's face it, Zimmerman was acquitted. So he was going on with his life. Um, and the the cost benefit of pursuing Angela Corey just didn't seem sufficiently attractive to people to actually chase her down.
0: It was that discretion aspect. absolutely. So, so that being said, what about like losing her law license or something? I mean, that that would be a possibility if, if malpractice or she was doing something that was uh, politically motivated. Is that would that be a possibility? I'm just thinking outside the box sure. as far as for people thinking. You know, somebody's got. I mean, in a case like that, where you know they, the the governor searched for an, a district attorney to take the case, and then they ultimately lost the case.
2: I identified misconduct among that prosecution from the very beginning before they even went to trial. Uh, It was obvious to me that this was not a a legitimate case to bring. The trouble is to pursue any action against Angela Corey, someone has to actually do that. A human being has to stand up and say, I wish to take on this mission. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And nobody will because it's not in their interest. They They have what they believe are more productive ways to spend their time than go after Angela Corey over a years old case that's not in the news anymore.
1: Well, and I, I can I can say too, you know, the the money talks, right? So, right. something like that would would cost a lot of money potentially. You know, having uh, being associated with some of the things going on locally here in Pennsylvania and in Pittsburgh, it costs a ton of money to do stuff like that. Even when you have a a, a wonderful lawyer who's doing a whole lot of stuff half price and free here and there, uh, it's it's an amazing investment of of time, effort, energy. And then when it comes to someone having to be in politics to, you know, to like uh, file, file charges or file uh, uh, ethics violations, you know, then it's like, okay, now I don't get my water treatment plant in my jurisdiction if I go after this because of the, the uh, politics that they yeah. deal with internally in the legislature.
2: If you talk to most prosecutors, in my experience, most of them are able to take something less than 5% of their cases to trial. Hmm. Wow. So 95% have no prospect of ever going to trial. Now they may be addressed by a plea bargain or some other, you know, alternative resolution kind of mechanism, but they're not going to trial. Hmm. Um, and of course, trial is where you suffer the worst negative consequences if you're the defendant and you lose, obviously that's where the stakes are highest. Uh, So, yeah, that's just one of those factors that that plays a role in their determination of whether or not they want to aggressively pursue this case. It's not controlling. Uh, They could be very busy and a case could pop up that for political reasons or whatever reasons they say, hey, I I don't believe the prosecutors in the Zimmerman case believed for an instant they were ever going to get a conviction, not on second degree malice murder in Florida. That was impossible. There was literally zero evidence in support of that criminal charge. Through the whole trial, there, there's literally zero evidence that George Zimmerman did anything unlawful. I mean, literally zero. In, in a criminal case where the prosecution has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a, a very high threshold. Yep. So I don't think they ever believed for a moment they were going to get a, a murder two conviction, uh, but they chose to do it anyway.
0: And then on the flip side of that, they didn't even sue uh, sue him civilly. So, you know, that, that other section yeah. court, right?
2: Right so that's uh, the that gets a bit more complicated. Florida is one of the states that has uh, a self-defense immunity provision mm-hmm. that applies to uh, both criminal and civil cases. Uh they chose not to pursue it in the criminal context because of the politics around the case. They just they didn't think they were going to get a favorable or reasonable um immunity hearing in the criminal context. But if George Zimmerman were ever sued, uh, civilly, he would certainly seek self-defense immunity in the, in the civil context, and he would get it. Yeah. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, and if you sue civilly in Florida, and then the other party gets immunity, you have to pay for all their legal expenses. In oh. fact, the lawyer who sued has to personally pay for half those legal expenses, wow. so they're That's not going to do that when yeah. they know that Zimmerman can, is going to get a So yeah. they don't have Absolute. any prospect of winning a civil case, and the consequences of losing would be one monetary, but also, of course, political, right? Because now they've tried to sue and they lost that
1: too. So they get another down on their on their record, right? Yeah, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, that, those kind of provisions are a great deterrent to stop someone from doing something tyrannical. We actually, uh, House Bill 1066 here in Pennsylvania, it's, it strengthens preemption, and, and it's currently, it was just passed the Judi- Judiciary Committee, and that law, if passed, would make it uh, those elected officials that choose to violate law-abiding citizens' rights uh, and pass laws that supersede the state, the state uh, gun laws. Uh, they would then be, in turn, liable for the money uh, for those uh, folks that that they uh, that they uh, victimize by passing those laws right now, you know, uh, a city could pass a law that supersedes the state law. They confiscate my gun, whatever. I pay a fine, whatever. I take them to court. I'll win. But then I'm out all that money. Yeah. And so now this the and most people don't have that money.
2: Is, no, most, absolutely. most not. People don't have the money. So, yeah, unless the the people infringing the rights, abusing the law can be held personally accountable, then all their incentives are for abuse uh, because there's no disincentive against abuse. Uh, The only disincentive might be in a political context. And if they calculate the politics are on their side, then for the individual defendant or the individual person being targeted by a gun seizure, the individual person being targeted by a red flag law, there's no negative consequences to anybody for falsely making a red flag uh, claim. Uh, in theory, there could be consequences brought by the state filing a false police report, things mm-hmm. along those lines. But yeah. if the if you live in a state where they're anti-gun, they're never going to do that. Um, and there's none of these red flag laws that I'm aware of have any provision for the person falsely accused to go pr- right. themselves after the false accuser. No, it's uh, a cause of action there
0: it's funny you say that because we just had our our county district attorney at the local rod and gun club talking and he had said that he would prosecute anybody who brought a uh, a red flag a false red flag against anybody
2: but okay. that's up to him true mm-hmm.
0: it's and it's not and, up to the person who was falsely accused right so right. once okay. again it's based on Ge- geographical locations the discretion of that district attorney and it's an election year and he's got both a Republican and a Democrat running against them so he's gonna say whatever he needs to say to try to win like the, uh, the whole ghost gun thing he, he brought up he said that they got 20 ghost gun cases and he needs to uh, that something needs to be done these people can buy a, a 80% gun on the internet drill one hole in it put a clip in it and it's an illegal gun that's not how it works. <laughs> so, uh, the channel three actually interviewed me on that because they wanted to, to get the, the correct analogy of a, of a ghost gun.
2: Yeah. And of course the, the whole notion then again, is that there, somehow the gun is the evil thing, right? It's not the person who's the evil yep. thing. Exactly. Uh, if you have a law abiding person, it doesn't matter how many guns they have or what kind of yep. guns they have. They're not committing crimes with those guns. Yep. If you've got a bad guy, uh, they're committing horrible crimes with, you know, 32 caliber C camps that are made out of tin. Hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. The gun's not the problem. The gun's yeah. not the issue. It's the individual who's the issue. And unfortunately, this is going to get worse, uh, especially in the short term in New York, where they've now passed these new bail provisions, oh, yeah. uh, where essentially hmm. people can get arrested for pretty serious crimes and then yep. be out the same day on their own recognizance yep. got and got a follows. dollar of bail required uh, to go commit the same crimes. And they could commit the same crimes multiple times a day. And if the criminal justice system is efficient that day, they'll get kicked out every single time. (laughs) Uh, And many of these people are genuine bad actors. So what we're doing is we're increasing the the number of violent people we're releasing onto the streets and making it more difficult for law-abiding people to defend themselves against those bad actors. I mean, it's it's just a form of insanity.
1: Your example is is. Perfect to explain what happened in Philadelphia with that guy that shot up all the cops a couple uh, about a month or so ago. You know, that was a situation where government failed and we had a person who had no business legally or ethically or morally having a gun, but yet he obtained it illegally and shot at a whole bunch of cops and and then now the governor is is basically uh, taking it out on the law-abiding gun owner. Yeah, right. And I mean,
2: we, we all know that people who want to do illegal drugs do illegal drugs. There's yep. no effective way to stop people from doing illegal drugs. A bad guy who wants an illegal gun gets an illegal gun. There's no way to keep a bad guy from getting an illegal gun. Uh, and it's, it's part of the nonsense of the, the whole conceptual underpinnings of these red flag laws. It, it, if someone is genuinely a deadly force threat to the public, the answer is not to take away his inanimate objects and leave right. him on the street you take away all his guns and he can still go rent a U-Haul truck and fill it up with fertilizer and diesel fuel yep. and drive it into a schoolyard full of kids and blow everybody up. Or use you a knife. You haven't done away with the danger. You've left exactly. the danger on the streets. You, you've just removed one facet of how he might go about killing a whole bunch of people.
1: Yeah. One of the new narratives that the anti-gun forces are pushing with the red flag laws, and, and in my opinion, is another example of where they lose a lot of their integrity is they're saying, well, these red flag laws are to is, are to help people who might commit suicide. But even then, there's nowhere in these red flag laws that talks about giving that individual treatment. It's just a gun grab.
2: Gun controllers do not argue in good faith, ever. It's never in good faith. These are not, it, they're kind of in a cult. They're in a cult where they fear this inanimate object. Um, and it's almost impossible to change their minds, the leaders of these organizations, the active participants in any reasoned logical way because they're not operating on that level. Mm -hmm. And you can't reason someone out of a position that they didn't reason themselves into. Um, Hmm. These are emotionally driven people. That's why they fear inanimate objects. That's why they seek easy, simplistic solutions to complicated problems like, oh, if we just took the guns away, even though you live in a country that has more guns than people, the guns are never going away. Uh, That's not going to happen. And of course, guns effectively last forever. I mean, they don't. Wear out in any practical sense. You'd have to use them pretty aggressively to actually wear out a quality firearm. Um, So they flail around in a very uh, emotional sense. They make rules that are incoherent, that are unfit for their intended purpose, like the red flag laws. They claim they're for ensuring public safety, but they cannot, in effect, Mm -hmm. ensure public safety for reasons we've already described. Uh, These are not reasoned arguments and reasoned positions. They are emotional arguments and emotional positions. And frankly, you can't change those people's minds Uh, Agreed the the, the people you need to target for political persuasion are the people who are Open-minded about these things and those are not going to be the activists and leaders in the gun control movement
1: a lot of the legislators who are involved with writing legislation, you know I I was just in Harrisburg last week and I can't tell you how many of them said just flat-out I don't know anything about guns. We need to take time to educate our our legislators and and talk to them. Even if they're so-called anti-gun, take a moment to sit down and and speak to them and see if we can at least give them some information. And perhaps, you know, knowledge is power, man. So maybe we can win them over to the side of liberty, perhaps, especially if they can see how it would get them reelected.
2: Yeah, I just I don't think these arguments are won on, on the technical level. Uh, although of course if you're if you're at all familiar with guns, you see all the technical defects, right They call things clips instead of magazines, and yep. they think uh you know a five five six bullet operates somehow ballistically differently if it's fired out of an a r than if it's fired out of a woodstocked rifle yep mm-hmm. uh, but i I think these people are as I say largely driven emotionally, and so you need to keep the fundamental arguments largely on a level that can pierce emotion uh things like the fact is when you ban guns the only people who you're denying guns are people who obey those laws. The bad guys don't obey gun laws any more than they obey drug laws or laws against murder. So the more stringent you make the laws against the lawful possession of guns, all you're doing is concentrating gun ownership in the hands of the unlawful and diminishing it in the hands of the lawful. And that can't be good public policy for anybody.
0: Right. Right. I always use the term, uh, I don't know any bad guy that's going to put seven rounds in a 10 round magazine before they go rob a bank.
1: Yeah. They got, they got to make sure they're using a compliant magazine before yeah. they go jack up a bank. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I find wording it in a way that talks about the, the righteous cause of defending myself and my family. When I say myself, I defend my son's daddy. I mean, that's, that's a real cause. And that's the true reason for wanting to have, or for most people, law abiding citizens to have that firearm. Yep. One other thing about it, too, and I'd like your opinion on this, you know, if, if somebody were to purposefully hurt themselves, like if, if they, you know, would talk to themselves in a the mirror and say bad things to themselves or if they would cut themselves with a blade and and intentionally hurt themselves, we would agree that that person is ill and needs treatment. Would we agree with that? So any person that would advocate to restrict or limit or abolish their own rights as an American to me is someone that's sick. And perhaps needs treatment. I've used that argument a few times, and it's it's stopped conversations for a minute. <laughs> uh, it, it's yeah. pretty interesting way to look at it. But I, I really truly believe that if you want to limit and restrict your own rights, then there's something wrong, man. You need treatment.
2: Yeah, um, um, but of course the people who are doing that don't feel like they're restricting their own rights. They feel like they're restricting the you know the power of bad people. Yeah, you know, uh, is what they're doing. They think they're acting in good faith. Uh, They just, uh, they think they're doing the right thing. That's why they're doing it. They just haven't thought it through, or they're incapable of thinking it through, or they're acting on a reflexive emotional level. Uh, In their minds, they might think that, man, if we just ban guns, no bad guys will have a bad gun. Uh, Doesn't make any sense from any real world perspective, but apparently that's what they believe based on the laws that they're actually passing. Or at least they think, if they don't believe it, they think their constituents believe it.
1: This is Will Parker of Freddie Merckx. Yes, the best mustache in the industry. You're watching Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. So uh, we'll shift gears a little bit, Andrew. You're you're a shooter, right? You like to shoot?
2: I do. Uh, For much of my life, I was an extremely active competitive shooter, shooting matches all over the country, uh, not so much the last five or ten years, just because of work obligations and family obligations, which I, I really miss. Uh, I did a lot of USPSA shooting, a lot of IDPA shooting. Um, I was actually at the very start of IDPA. I helped edit the first rule book, even before we the sport was officially announced. Nice. Uh, I knew Bill Wilson already at the time. Uh, my member number in IDPA is thirteen. Wow! Uh, and I think they have over twenty-five thousand members at this
1: point. That's impressive. 13 is a lucky number.
2: Uh, shot a lot of the uh, RO'd, a lot of the first nationals for IDPA. In those days, there was not even a certification to be a IDPA. I guess they call them SOs. Uh, they just picked people who'd already been ROs in USPSA and said, yeah, go ahead, wear the hat. Uh, now I guess they have a, a formal certification process for that kind of thing. But yeah, I'm a big fan of competitive shooting. I think it's a great discipline. Uh, and frankly, I think it's very useful for self-defense purposes. Uh, not in the sense that any scenario you might shoot an IDPA match is necessarily a precise scenario you'll encounter in real life, but more generally that, and one of the most difficult things about making good decisions in self-defense is simply the stress that you're experiencing when you're compelled to make those decisions. And we don't tend to make better decisions under stress. We tend to make worse decisions. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. to the extent you can Uh, at least partially immunize yourself to stress, expose yourself to stress and have to make reasonably complicated decisions, like executing a stage plan in a competitive shooting sport, Uh, you get better at making relatively complicated decisions under stress. So I think if for no other reason than that, uh, competitive shooting is a great adjunct to a person's self-defense toolbox.
1: Are you a a striker fire guy or a hammer guy?
2: Uh, So for most of my adult life, about 25 years, I carried a a 5-inch 1911 uh, and uh, loved that gun. Uh, Very happy with it, shot it very well. It was also my competition gun. I probably put about 100,000 rounds through that gun in competition over 10 or 15 years. Uh, But now I currently carry a a SIG uh, 320, so a striker fired gun.
1: Cool. Uh, one other question I wanted to ask you uh, before we start wrapping some things up here, uh, you know, your book, Law of Self-Defense, is, is widely regarded as like this should be the first book you should read as far as the, the law and self-defense is concerned. Are there, some, are there any other resources that you might, might recommend for our viewers to uh, look at after they've read your book?
2: Yeah, sure. So I mean, the advantages of my book is really that it it presents a lot of people have this uh, feeling that self-defense law is kind of this amorphous black box. It's an possible to know how these decisions are made or how these legal principles work or there's so many variables that have to be considered and mostly they think about that they think that way about it because of the extremely poor reporting that's done on self-defense cases Mm -hmm. Uh, reporting written by people who don't understand the subject matter so they they misreport they make it seem far more complicated than it is the truth is there's only up to five elements of a self-defense claim folks just five not 50 not 100 Uh, Just five. It's not rocket science. It's not that hard to understand. But someone needed to distill it, the complicated statutory language, the jury instructions, the 30 page court decisions down to those five elements. So that's what we did in our book. That's the basic framework of everything we do in use of force law. Uh, so I, I, also suggest people start with our book simply because it provides a common foundational understanding of what the legal principles are in plain English, very easy to understand. Most people tell us they get through our book in three or four hours. So mm-hmm. one Sunday afternoon, you get through the whole book and, uh, and you'll know 80% of what you need to know about self-defense law for sure. And by the way, those, those same principles apply in all 50 States folks, uh, The self-defense law across the 50 states is about 80% the same at the principles level, and that reflects the fact that self-defense law is very old law. I mean, American self-defense law comes from the old English common law, which itself is rooted in ancient Greek and Roman laws on Mm -hmm. self-defense. Self-defense is not a new human concept. It's been around Mm -hmm. as, as long as people have been around Uh, But once you get past our book, of course, we offer more advanced uh, forms of education, too, including our courses. But in terms of other people's resources, uh, yeah, there are a number of people who are really good at this stuff. Yub, of course, is one. Um, I always urge people, if they don't read anything else, read his book In the Gravest Extreme, which is an old book now. I think he wrote it maybe in the late 70s or perhaps the early 80s. Uh, But it's a very thin book, but very powerful book, talking about many of the moral and ethical, as well as legal uh, dynamics around uh, the use of force and self-defense. He's got a more recent book out, Moss does, called Deadly Force. Uh, I don't remember the subtitle of the book, but uh, also a very excellent book, kind of a volume two to In the Gravest Extreme. And I say that not just because he says nice things about my book and his book. Moss <laughs> um, and I have known each other a long time. In fact, Moss, for those who may have seen our book, uh, he wrote the foreword to the current nice. edition of The Law of Self-Defense. So awesome. I, I've known Moss a long time. By the way, Moss also teaches live classes, uh, his uh, uh, Masada Yub Group classes. And I would urge you, uh, if you've never had an opportunity to take one of those, take it. It's yeah. outstanding. He's a great instructor, great presenter.
0: The MAG-20 is the classroom one, right? The Mag, Mag, I believe 20 MAG-20 20 is, 20
2: is the classroom. MAG-40 is that plus, yeah. I think, another 20 hours of uh, range range instruction. Yep. Right? Uh, but really, the MAG-20 is the one I think you want. The range instruction, you know, shooting a gun is pretty much the same. Whoever teaches it, hopefully. Uh, if not, maybe they're doing something very odd. Um, but there's nothing tremendously exceptional about how Moss teaches shooting a gun. We all teach it just about the same. But the classroom work is really... Uh, exceptional and powerful, so I, I would encourage people to do that. Um, and there are other instructors out there who do great work. Uh, Craig Douglas is a guy who teaches mm. self defense, a lot of knife self defense, very solid on the legal stuff as well. Uh, he does a lot of force on force training, and uh, I've uh, I've not taken a class with him, but we've taught at the same forum, so I've seen him teaching. He does a great job. Uh, Anyone who's been through our Law Self-Defense Instructor Program, like Will Parker, that's mm-hmm. that, that program is essentially the equivalent of a semester-long law school class in use of four slots. It's how law schools should be teaching this stuff, and, and none wow. of them do, to my knowledge. But anyone who's been through that 15 to 20 hours of instruction and the cases they've had to read and all the coursework – that's someone who knows self-defense law at a far higher level than most lawyers or cops that you're going to meet. Unless of course, they've also been through a a similar course of instruction. Uh, Now I know I'm forgetting people and someone's going to send me a nasty email asking (laughs) me why I didn't mention (laughs) that, but hopefully not. uh, But there are a few others out there. Uh, If people make the effort to learn this stuff, it's quite possible. Again, it's not rocket science, you just have to be careful not to assume that people know this stuff simply because they have a job title like lawyer, cop, or,
0: or firearms instructor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, it's, it's a scary uh, web out there. I, I hear so many stories like, oh, cop from the 80s told me if I pull the gun out, I got to use it. Like, mm, no, no. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and unfortunately
2: you know, it leads people to poor decision-making yes, and uh, very much decision-making so. that, that can end up with them spending a lot of time in prison. Uh, yep. By the way, one thing I always like to encourage people to do is uh, is just go to our blog at Law of Self-Defense. Just go to lawofselfdefense.com. Uh, you'll find uh, links to our blog posts. We do blog posts and video and audio just about every day. That day's blog post is free to everybody. We don't ask for an email. We don't ask for a penny. We don't ask for anything. So every every day that you go to our website, lawofselfdefense.com, You'll find absolutely free content there. Uh, And if you like what you see, then there's opportunities to become a member or to buy the book or the course. But we always suggest to people, try the free option first and see if you like what you see. And if you like what you see, you'll learn a lot just from the free content. And by the way, if you go to the website every day, you'll get a free blog post every day. uh, And you never have to pay us anything. Uh, But it's our experience that once people... Uh, start to read what we do. Start to listen to our our, our videos and audio. Uh, that they do become members. They do become more deeply involved in learning this stuff at a more actionable level.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on, Andrew. And we will uh, definitely link to the the different your site, the blog, etc. in in the uh, comments below, so people can follow you and learn more about you, and hopefully take your courses because you've been around and a mainstay in the industry for a long time. And uh, the wealth of knowledge is definitely uh, welcomed.
1: Well, it was an honor to have you on our show, sir. Thank you very much for for being on.
0: Sure thing. Have a great day. We have a lot of sponsors that made this show possible.
1: Make sure you check them out and give them your business. This episode is made possible with the generous support of Nikon, Shooter Technology Group, ASP, Lee Armory, Saber Red, and the Safer Faster Defense Responder 2.0. Thank you. (laughs) You did both of our names, so yeah, I figured okay. I'd do the rest. Okay. Thanks for watching the show. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me just do what that. What are we doing? Thanks for watching the show, then you do the, be sure you click the bell and all that okay. other show. Okay. Okay, good.
0: Thanks for watching the show. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, and click that little bell to make sure you know when our next episode's uploaded. Until next time. Adieu. That's good. That's
1: cool. I like it.
2: Meet the pressers.